Father, what we're about to look at um, has been impressed on me since our study of John that you are calling us to be able to access all that you have for us. You're calling us to be men and women, boys and girls, who know how to access all of these great truths, the power, the presence, and the promises that you have for us. Today, as we start this study of how do I begin to really see it work effectively in my life, come Holy Spirit, reveal, reveal faith to us today, explain it to us, impart it to us, illuminate us with your word. In Jesus' name, amen. I want to get you to read a scripture out loud with me. Whoops. That one's going that way. Is it up on this one? There it is. Okay. Can you read this out loud with me? Now, faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. For by it, the people of old received their commendation. By faith, we understand that the universe was created by the word of God so that what is seen was not made out of things that are, are visible. Now, one of the guys that I studied, he, he, he put it this way, and it, it, it sort of helped me make sense of this. He said, if you were to go to a Bible study and the leader were to say to you, okay, what is faith? You would get a variety of answers, but maybe the first one, if, if you're sort of a church person, and you grew up in church, the first answer you would probably give is, well, it's, it's that faith is what we confess. For example, I grew up in a very traditional church, and so every Sunday we confessed the, the Apostles' Creed. And so we, at a certain time in the service for 18 years of my life, every time it was the time to say it, we said it. We said, I believe in God the Father, And we just could go through it. Now, at this moment, I can't remember all of that. You put me back in that church, and you surround it with a thing called the glory of pottery and the doxology, and suddenly I would remember every word, and we used to say it as fast as we possibly could. So it sounded like, I believe in the Father, you know, and that was what we called Presbyterian speaking in tongues at that point. Okay, just speak it real fast, real, get to the next thing and, and keep going. And so for a lot of people, when they think of faith, they think, well, faith are these propositions that I believe and that I have confessed. But really and truly, biblically speaking, that's, that's, not, that's not faith. That's the, that, that's the propositional truth that we found our faith on, but it's not faith. Then, if you're at this same Bible study, you know, you might have, have somebody that comes along that, that uh, you know, has a, uh, a more theological bent or a little more theological training. And they say, well, the, the classical view of faith that goes back to the Reformation is that it has three parts. So faith has this one part where you have to know something. And then what you know, you have to begin to assent to. And then what you assent to, then you have to begin to trust in. So it starts with knowledge, 
And then the knowledge has to be accepted and agreed to. And then as you agree to that knowledge, real faith moves to the level that you begin to trust in it. Now, any of you that have kids and you're trying to bring your kids up in the nurture and of the Lord and the faith of, uh, of, of you know, our historic faith, and you're trying to get them to be believers, it's important that you understand that you can give them knowledge, but you can't make them agree to it. And even if you get them because of your great life or your great witness or your great persuasive abilities to agree to it, they themselves have to trust in it, or it's not really theirs. I, I re- recognize this with my kids. My, my son and my daughter are four years apart, both of them very different from one another. Uh, Joseph loved reading, and, and he read everything in sight, and he, his favorite person to listen to at 13 was Ravi Zacharias, if any of you know who he is. Pretty heavy stuff. My daughter liked watching Cinderella every day. Okay, that's kind of the difference between the two of them in terms of approach. She loved to feel. He liked to think. And so the same Bible stories didn't hit them the same or the same kind of teaching. And they were four years apart. And I saw us drifting as a family away from being able to connect in devotions, being able to connect in our, in our spiritual lives. And I, I longed with my kids. I wanted them to understand the scriptures. I wanted them to know God. I wanted them to have Christian morality. I wanted all of these things. And so desperately, Lisa and I looked and said, how do we connect both these kids? And the thing that connected our children was not our Bible studies with them. It wasn't our Bible story time. It was our worship. It was music. We got together as a family, and I would play guitar, and Joseph would play guitar or drums or whatever it was, and Anna would sing, and Lisa would sing, and we'd all sing and worship together. And so in those moments, Joseph didn't look and say, oh, that's my sister who's not cool, and Anna didn't say, that's my brother who torments me. We just worshiped the Lord together, and you could see not only did they have knowledge, not only were they agreeing, but something had gone past just their minds, and it got into their hearts, and you could see in both of them that they were worshiping the Lord. It's an interesting thing that faith has to be more than just assent. It's, it's pretty fascinating that in many places all over the United States, the, the only faith that people have is an intellectual assent about God, but no trust in God. See, when you trust in God, your life is transformed by God. When all you do is agree that there is a God, or you agree that some truths about God that you are taught are true, then it has no real impact on your life. See, what the the writer of Hebrews is trying to do is he's not trying to define faith. He's trying to describe faith. See, it's a difference. I, I had a little bit of a glitch in my doctoral defense because I, I had a part of a, uh, a section in my doctoral defense where I was having to define the supernatural things that I was researching because I was talking about Uh, healing miracles. Uh, I was talking about a child that was raised from the dead. I was talking about emotional breakthroughs. I was talking about things like how when we identify with the sins of our ancestors and repent, it brings blessing and breaks curses on the land. And all this stuff is kind of unusual for a for a dissertation. And so I had to have a section and they asked that I would write definitions. And then I got into my defense and the person who was 
you know, cross-examining me on my, on my dissertation, he looked at me and said, this is not a section of definitions, this is a section of descriptions. And I was like, oh, I was pretty ticked at the time. You know, I was like, I don't really know what to say about this. I, I'm thinking you're being a little ticky right now, and I don't know, you know, I'm awkward in this moment, but as I've looked at it and thought about it, I have always been more interested in descriptions than I have definitions. I want to know how something works. I want to know how to apply it. I want to know what kind of impact it's going to go. I don't just want you to tell me what something is. I want it to work. That's what the writer of Hebrews is doing. He's not defining the ultimate theological definition of faith. He's saying this is what it looks like when you have it. He's saying this is the way it works. This is the way it will impact your life. But then as you look at what he says, look at, those, look at what he says there. It's the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. If you were at that Bible study and I was asking you what this meant, you would have to honestly say, I have no idea. This is kind of crazy talk. What the heck does this mean kind of thing? If you, now, some of you, you know, you've been in church so long, you're a little overchurched, a little like overcooked steak or something like that, you know? You, you, you get so familiar and hardened, you don't even notice the amazing things that are there. And you, sometimes we don't realize that we've not let his word impact us at the deepest level. If you get what the writer of Hebrews is saying here, you will not have anxiety anymore. If you get what he's saying here, you will not struggle with depression emotionally. If you get what he's saying, you might get angry, but you won't stay angry. You might feel uh, the injustice, but you won't stay in a place of grudging or unforgiveness. Because if you get this and you get what real faith is and how it works, your life will be changed. Your life will be changed. But you have to begin to understand what he means by this. So... Let me show you a couple things from this. Let me move to this. As I told you, he's not defining faith here. See, this is the 11th chapter of the book. It's the 11th chapter of a very, very essential book in the scriptures. Hebrews is one of the greatest books ever written in terms of bringing all of the Old Testament and all the promises of God and how they're all fulfilled in Jesus One of my professors said if he was ever uh, limited to a single book of the Bible, he said the single book he would read would not be Romans, it would be Hebrews. Because there is such a revelation of Jesus Christ as the remedy of the Father, as the very salvation that that God has offered, how it's so perfectly, perfectly fulfilled and applied in Jesus is found in the book of Hebrews. But it's written... It's written either in or at the end of a time of severe persecution. And it's written to Jewish Christians, those who are from a Jewish religious and ethnic background who have given their lives to the Messiah, Jesus. But in the midst of that persecution, for some reason, it was more dangerous to be a Christian than it was to be a Jew. And so many of those who had, who had come out of Judaism into a relationship with Jesus left the church to go back to Judaism in the midst of the persecution. 
And those who were remaining were barely holding on. Some of them were holding on, just, just, just barely holding on, and even beginning to forsake the assembling of themselves together because it was so dangerous and it was so difficult. And so the writer is in this, this whole letter. He is encouraging people who are in hard times, who are in difficult times, who are even in fear for their lives. He's encouraging them to have faith to move forward. And so he's explaining how you do that. Now, this is, this is a fairly fascinating aspect of, of this chapter and of this book because, listen to me on this. When life doesn't go the way you plan, when it doesn't go the way you expected it to go, that is when your flesh most manifests. When nothing is going right is when your dark side tends to erupt. It's when you begin to to see how far you've actually gone or come in faith. It's when, you see, it's in those moments that persecution comes. And the persecution could be external like it was in the days of the Hebrews. Or it could be internal, like it is for so many of us, because we get in our minds, we get in our our hearts, we get, this is the way my life should be. This is the way people should treat me. This is the way things ought to happen. These are the circumstances that ought to be in my life, and God, you're supposed to make them happen. And when that happens, what you find is your life is not based on faith, It's rather based on false expectations that then conclude in false assumptions about who God is, about what faith is, and about what your future should be. And when that happens, many of us cry out instead of in faith to the God who is there, but we cry out and say, why aren't you there? And so the writer of the Hebrews is not defining faith, but he's encouraging men and women like you who have a dark side, who have parts that are not yet redeemed, who have parts of you that are still not pervaded by the gospel of Jesus Christ. And he's saying, this is what it looks like. This is what it looks like. And so he gives a description. He gives us some heroes of the faith. He begins to hint at the fact that what you're going through is not new. It's always been the case that there's always been this issue of faith versus sight. And then the last one is he also, for some reason, he decides that when he's going to get you to trust God, he wants you to get trust God because he's the creator. And I'll show you a little bit about that. So let's look at, there's only two Really, two points that I want to make today, and then hundreds of subpoints. So we'll be here till tomorrow. <laughs> Just preparing you. All right. So, what does it mean? The assurance or the substance of things hoped for. So this this is the category of faith where every single believer, every one of you who's ever said, "Lord, I trust you." Lord, I know you. Lord, I love you. Lord, I will follow you. Every one of you will be tested in this area and faith will be produced in the area of things that are not yet, yet, not yet realized or experienced in your life. 
You will never have great faith if you cannot go through the times when there are not yet. This is the way faith is developed. This is the way faith is made real. This is the way faith is mature. Let me, let me explain what I mean by this. One is that our faith is never in faith. People who have faith in faith have faith in nothing. Or they have worse, they have faith in everything, which is the same as having it in nothing. Until you have something reliable to have faith in, your faith is useless to you. Now, let me explain what I mean by this in a few stories. I used to keep a chair in my office that was falling apart. I love that chair because it's a great illustration because people would come in and say, I don't understand how to have faith. Uh, you know, or they'd come in and say, I have great faith. Or they'd come in and say, I have faith in faith. And I, so I'd, I'd say, okay, you have great faith. Sit in that chair. They would look at me like I was crazy. They said, if I sit in that chair, I'm going to fall to the ground. I said, but you have great faith. So go, I have faith in the chair. I have faith in the chair. I have faith in the chair. Like that, you know, because it looks like you're constipated or something. Like Superman faith. They'd say, I don't, they'd look at me like I was crazy. And they'd say, I don't care how much faith I have. If I sit in that chair, I'm going to fall to the ground. I said, exactly. Unless the object of your faith is faithful and trustworthy, no matter how much faith you have, it will not sustain you. They go, oh, that makes sense to me. That makes sense to me. And so I, I want to take this a step further. In other words, what I'm saying you have faith in that has not yet been realized, but you have this hope, you have this assurance, you have this substance of it, is what happens when you begin to truly have faith in the promises of God. The promises of God are real. They are true. They often make you linger. They are often lengthy in their fulfillment. Many times they are fulfilled in ways of unexpectedness. But they are always true. Let me, let me illustrate this with a story that I heard. There was a little boy who... Yeah, I don't know if you ever noticed this, but kids get to the place where they can't go anymore emotionally and they lose it. You ever seen that? Oh, the yeah, adults do that too. But, uh, but, but with kids, sometimes they'll go into crying. They get uncon- you know, inconsolable. And you're sitting there and you're going, oh, my goodness. And I remember sometimes even with my, with my kids and, and, and Lisa would try to, you know, be the, she's a good mom. And she would say, oh, is it okay? You know, and whatever. But, but there was something about when I would come in and would speak to them, that would change things. Now, let me give you an example of what I mean by this. So there's this little boy. He's inconsolable. He's crying and crying, and his father comes in, and the little boy goes, all the other boys have bicycles. I don't have a bicycle. Can I have a bicycle by my birthday? And he's just weeping and crying. And the father looks at him and says, son, by your birthday, you will have a bicycle. Now, this is a father who is responsible. This is a father who keeps his word. This is a father who every time he has spoken something to his son, he has done it. 
The moment that he speaks to the son and says, by your birthday, you will have the bicycle, the boy gets the substance of the bicycle that moment. He then lives in hope for his birthday, but it's already real to him. Why? Because his father is faithful and responsible and reliable. So he gets to experience the bicycle long before his birthday. That's what this writer is talking about. Now, how does that work in real life for you and me? Well, let me give you one more personal story. Many years ago now, um, when my mom was 61, she came down with a very rare form of cancer. And when she got sick, I was actually traveling in South America seeing people get healed of cancer just by laying on hands. One lady uh, was a pastor's wife, and she had terminal cancer. We laid hands on her, prayed over her. She vomited out a black substance, and she was completely healed. And uh, they, they checked her out. She had no cancer. She lived, you know, for many, many years. So I was like, Lord, those are strangers to me. I'm glad that you were healing them, but this is my mom. I want her healed. So as soon as I heard about it, I, I went. I said, Mom, can I come take care of you? And so I, I stayed in her hospital room. They had an extra bed in there. They let me stay in there and take care of her. And so for, for quite a while, I took care of my mom. But I was really there not to take care of her. I was there to pray the cancer away. And so I fasted and I prayed. Some, some nights I just knelt by her bed while she slept and I just prayed. And I just called on the name of the Lord and I, and I kept going after it because, I mean, this is my mom. I want to see her healed. I've seen strangers healed. I want to see my mom healed. Well, mothers have this way that no matter how powerful you think you are in the spirit, they're still mom and you are still their son. And so I'd be there crying out to God, and she'd start patting me on the head. <laughs> and she'd go, son, it's okay. I said, mom, what do you mean? I, I, I'm praying. I want, I'm fasting. I want, you to be, I want you to be healed. And she looked at me with the, the clearest vision of the substance of things not yet. And she said to me, Mike, whether he heals me here or he heals me there, I am already healed. See, she was living in her healing even while cancer was eating at her body. Let me tell you what this did for her. Now, I would have preferred that she be healed of the cancer because I would still have her with me. But this is what God did. Because she embraced the substance of her healing, and because she lived in her healing, and it was a reality to her, although it was not fulfilled till she got to the other side. Because of that, we began to see the worldliness, the selfishness, the self-centeredness, the, even the pain that she was going through. We began to see the glory of the Lord on her face. As a matter of fact, the Bible is really clear. See, the last step in the to-do list of God, having justified you, having sanctified you, teaching you and, and developing you in faith and character and all that, the last thing the Bible says that'll happen to you is he glorifies you. Now, I don't know all that that means, but I know this much. It means this earth suit is stripped away. 
And it means that what, what remains cannot be touched by cancer. What remains can no longer be touched by tears. It cannot be hurt. It cannot be damaged because it is glorious. As a matter of fact, C.S. Lewis said, if you were to see yourself now as you will be, you would fall down and worship yourself. Some of you already do that, but you're idiots. You understand what I mean? So I got to see because she had the substance of what she had not yet experienced, but she was experiencing it already. I saw her glorified. Every nurse that came in there gave their life to Christ. Every person who came to minister to her, she ministered to them. At her funeral, that I preached at her funeral, and they came up to me afterwards, and they told me what my mom did for their lives in the last days of her cancer. Let me, let me tell you something, though. For some reason, a reason I don't fully understand, in her life before the cancer, she never pursued the Lord like that. She never pursued the promises of God like that. She never lived in that place of the substance of things hoped for. My mom was a whiner and a complainer. She spent most of her life complaining of illness, complaining of sickness. As a matter of fact, when she found out she had cancer, she was happy. She said, I told you so. But something changed when she got that diagnosis and she began to rely on the promises of God. And she began to live in the present hope of the future. Will it take cancer for you? Will it take some devastation for you to finally begin to say, let me pursue what God has to say about these things? You see, when he says you'll have a bicycle by your birthday, you will have a bicycle. But you have to know how to ask. You have to know what it is he promises. I mean, if you go around saying, I'm going to have a Cadillac, or I'm going to have a Lexus, or I'm going to have this, sometimes what you're saying is, I don't even know how to ask for what matters. And the father has to often say no. Because you see, he doesn't resource our imaginations. He is not the God who has promised to fulfill your fantasies. As a matter of fact, he's actually the God because he loves you and he's not codependent on you and he's not an enabler of you. He's actually the God who has to oppose your fantasies. But he is the God who wants to reveal his plans and his agenda. See, if you have faith for your fantasies, it's not from God. If you begin to say, I know that this is going to happen and it's one of your fantasies, the resource is not from heaven. It's presumption, not faith. It's false expectation. So when he comes and he, he stops you from getting what you thought you deserved or what you thought you wanted, you will grow to hate him and be angry with him when actually he's trying to take you out of the puniness of your imagination and take you into the limitlessness of his revelation. But in order to do that, you have to be able to sustain while you're waiting. You have to be able to embrace it as true even though you haven't actually attained it yet. 
See, I, I, I saw that with my mother. I saw she knew she was healed. She lived in it. And she changed the world in those six months. She changed my world. She brought healing to me. She brought healing to my family in those six months because she embraced the promises of God and she lived in it. Does this make sense to you? You got really, really still there. Am I reading you right that you're letting this come in? See, because many, many people say to me they have faith. They have very little faith, if any faith. Because the faith that is from the Spirit, the faith that is the gift of God, is for that revelation that he has in his word and in his voice. You see, if you slow down and stop screaming and yelling and being angry long enough, you'll hear him say, you will have the bicycle by your birthday. Would you just let that come in for a minute? Would you say it with me? It's figurative, you see. I will have my bicycle by my birthday. I just think this is something you can remember. Will you say it one more time with me? I will have my bicycle by my birthday. Now, whatever that bicycle is, whatever he has promised, and his dates are true, and he never is late. He never is late. But it's this not yet part. See, you will never fully have great faith till you can go through the not yet. Now, let me just say one more thing on this. You need no faith for your imagination. You need no faith for your fantasy because you made it all up. You only need great faith for what he reveals. You only need, you know, supernatural faith for that which God's going to do. And you only have that faith if you are sustained while you wait and while you trust. So the second part of this is equally important, and I'll kind of go through it somewhat quickly. When he describes this character of faith and when he's describing the impact that faith has in its specific character, it's this conviction of things not seen. So you have these two elements that absolutely always will be there when he's developing you as a follower. The one is there's always going to be some waiting for that which is not yet. The choice when you live by faith is you get to experience it before it ever happens. But this aspect that is hard for us is that there's always the unseen. See, the very one who's promising is one's vo- whose voice is not necessarily audible. It's not a voice that, that simply comes out of a bush usually for us or out of a, the sky for us. Generally speaking, it's a voice that comes from the, the words of others or comes through our own consciousness or comes through pictures or comes through scriptures, but it's not a voice that's seen. And it's so interesting. He wrote this book. He wrote it to people who were used to everything being sight. They had the temple. They had Jerusalem. They had the sacrifices. They had all of this stuff that they could see and they could touch. But even in the Old Testament, what really mattered wasn't what you could see. It's what 
what the scene accomplished. You can't see forgiveness. You can't see relationship. You can't see communion. You can see, you can see sacrifice, but the sacrifice is leading to relationship. You can see that there's a cost, there's blood involved, but that is not being able to see the forgiveness. The forgiveness is what results. It's the unseen. This is one of the hardest things is to make this transition from being a person who lives on the basis of what I can see to beginning to believe and understand that what is most real is invisible. That is a hard thing. And and I don't ever blame people for thinking us foolish because really the foolishness of God is wiser than the wisdom of man. Because see, here's the thing. This is not a leap of faith into saying, okay, I can't see God, but I'm going to trust Him. It's not that at all. Because again, if your faith is not is in something that's not real, then it doesn't matter. It's irrelevant. The only time that it's worthy to have faith is if something is real, if it really is true. For example, I told you about the chair that falls apart. Well, you, you're sitting in chairs that don't fall apart. So, <laughs> so some of you, some of you at least, other than one, uh, some of you absolutely have trusted in that chair without thinking about it today. You've sat down, got up, sat down, got up. You've rested your whole posterior and all of your weight on that chair because you know it to have faithful chairness. (laughs) You see, it's easy to trust in something you've done before. It's easy to trust in something you watch everybody else doing. What's being asked for here is for, is for you to experience something so powerful that no matter whether you see it or not, you believe it. It's an interesting thing, and this is why there has to be a conversion. This is why you have to be born of the Spirit. This is why your eyes have to be open because you have to begin to see what others cannot see and to experience what others cannot experience, and then realize that this is actually more real to you than it is to what you've seen. See, to the believer and to the one who really lives by faith, this visible world is not our ultimate reality. This visible world is not permanent. So anything that you're going through, anything that's happening to you, it is not forever. It is not the end. It is, only, it is only here for a period of time. And the invisible which we have experienced in the Holy Spirit, the invisible God who wrote his word through holy men, the invisible God who makes promises and keeps them, this is our reality. See, I mean, if you take, for example, the storm on the sea and the disciples in the boat, The disciples said the storm is real and Jesus is asleep. That's our reality. I don't know how many people and how many times in my own life I said the storm is real and God is asleep. I didn't have faith. I like to say I had faith because I had a lot of theology. 
I like to say I had faith because I had a lot of Bible knowledge. But I didn't really have faith because faith is proven in the storm. Faith is revealed in the trouble. Faith is revealed in the trials. It's in those moments when I say that what is visible is not real. (laughs) It's not permanent. When I mean real, I mean substantive. I mean that it has some deep hold on me. You understand something? The storm can take you to the bottom of the sea, but it can't take your soul. The storm can take all of your money, but it can't take your worth. The storm can take away all your expectations and all your fantasies and all your dreams, but changes not one, one little jot or tittle of the revelation of God for your life. But what the storm reveals about us is that we're still in process, that we're still learning. I mean, it may seem harsh to you for me to say this, but the truth is when anxiety arises, that's a symptom of faithlessness. When depression arises, you see, depression is the substance of hopelessness. Faith is the substance of what is hoped for. It's holding on. It's experiencing it. And even though the one who has spoken it is unseen to you, he is more real to you than even what you see. That may be for some of you say, you are a crazy man. I am. Because I tell you, what I see does not jazz me up. What I see does not satisfy me. What I see just makes me covetous. What I see just makes me lustful. What I see destroys me. What I had not seen but experienced has given me life. Now, I'm not saying I can convince you of this, but this is what the writer says. He says, that which is unseen called into being that which we now see. He's saying everything you see is the product of the word of the one that you cannot see. So that even what is seen is subject to the invisible one. And he's the one who promises you. Now the second argument that he makes, and I think it's an even more powerful one, and this will be, I'll finish with this. You look tired, and I'm, I could keep going. The second one's this, and this is, this is deep, okay? The God who made the hardest promise ever has kept the hardest promise ever. It's the hardest promise ever was for the father to say, I will send my son, that my son will be the sacrifice for the sins of a rebellious and apathetic world. My son will suffer He will suffer brutally. He will suffer violently. And I will hold back my hand so that he can do that. I cannot imagine a stronger, harder promise. I love my son and my daughter. 
I love all of you, but other than the times I was really, really mad at them, I would not trade them for anything. Dan said he would have taken a, a few bucks for some of his sons at times. He explained that to me afterwards. But you know, and I know, when you love your child, even though you love other people, you will not sacrifice your child even for others. You know, even if you're furious with them, you will not trade that. But, but to think that you, if you ever saw the, the Passion of the Christ movie, and you watch, it's hard to even watch. I mean, when those cat and nine tails, which is a whip that had like glass and, and metal sewn into it, you know, tied up in it, and it's ripping flesh off of Jesus' back, and they're mocking him, and they're ridiculing him, not to mention the, you know, the physical pain and agony that he had gone through. And the father has the ability to say, stop! I mean, how many of us fathers, if we could just keep our kids from pain, we would do it. See, but he promised. And why did he promise that? Why did he promise? Because Jesus became a ransom for us, the Bible says. Now, I, I understand fully that ransom in the Bible has deeper theological ramifications than a ransom you pay in a kidnap, but at least you can understand the idea behind it. A ransom in a kidnap sets the value monetarily for the person that's been kidnapped. So the kidnappers assign a worth value to the person and then demand that as a ransom. Well, if you take that back to where the father is thinking, he is saying that you are worth enough to him, actually you are worth equal amount to him as the value he places on his own beloved, ever-obedient eternal son. And then Paul says it this way. says, if the father didn't spare his own son, will he not freely then give you all things in him? See, this is what, I mean, this is what this says to me. It says that as much as I know other people love me and that love is meaningful to me, no one else will ever value me like that. They can't because they, they need value themselves so much. And even when people love you, they still want from you. It's only God who needs nothing, who is self-sufficient and who has chosen to value you, not because of what you can do for him, but because of how much he loves you. It's not based on performance. You can't lose it. You don't suddenly become less valuable to him. And if you hold on to that and you say, I have worth, I have value to my father who kept the hardest promise ever, then he will keep his promise for me. And what happens is once you know that you have that worth, you can go through anything. Let me make it practical in one more way. People come to me often and we talk about things like sexual immorality, the struggles with lust. We talk about greed. We talk about jealousies and envies and competitions and all of these things. And it is true that there are ways that I, I have learned over the years to help people figure out how to take the power of that apart. 
so that you don't have to live as a slave of lust and you don't have to live in competition and jealousies. But the basis of it is this simple truth in Hebrews 11. The only way you can stop being jealous because someone else has a bike and you don't is if you know your father is taking care of you. The only way that you can look at others and say, why do they have an easier life than me? Why is it so hard on my family? Why is it so difficult here and so easy elsewhere? How can you possibly not get into covetousness and anger and unforgiveness unless you have the kind of faith that says the invisible God who gave his only son, will he not freely give me all things in him? And you begin to value him and you begin to devalue all the ways you try to satisfy yourself that don't work. I do not believe that anyone will really be free from lust unless they're full of faith. I do not believe that anyone will overcome their anxieties and depression unless they begin to move in faith. And they say, look, this is part of the process. I'm experiencing right now heaven, even though it feels like hell on earth. Because the invisible Father loves me. And he promises me. Now, let me tell you, this was the sadness that I had with my mom. I'm like, Mom, why didn't you do this your whole life? Those scriptures you're holding on to now, you could have held on to them when I was a kid. You could have prayed them. You could have spoken them. You could have believed them. I didn't say these things to her. I just thought them. And then the Lord spoke to me and says, well, what about you? What about you? Really easy to look at others and say, you ought to have faith. Another thing to say, I'm going to have faith. You know, I mean, I, I want to finish, but I want to say this one part to you, okay? Very emotional to me. I'm 55 years old. I've seen the goodness of the Lord, and a lot of it is because I've risked everything for him. I mean, it gets harder as I get older in some ways. My energy's not as high. My tolerance of risk is not quite so high. My realization of what pain looks like is a lot more, you know, real. But I watched this when I was a young pastor in my 20s. And these guys, these old guys would come, and old them was probably 40. But, uh, you know, (laughs) these old guys would come around, and I'd hear the members of the church, and they'd say, there's Pastor Warren. And they'd say this, oh, he used to have such a fire. Oh, he used to be so passionate. Oh, he had such a zeal for the Lord, but now he has none. I heard it again and again as a young minister. I don't know about you. I don't, I want to die more faith-filled, not less. I want to die, even if I can't walk, I want to die passionate and zealous for Jesus. Whatever it is that I'm losing physically, this is not, this is not my passion, it's not my earth suit. It's the fire of his presence. And the way that you experience it is not by more works but by being sustained and knowing the substance of what you hope for, even when it's not yet. 
by knowing that even that which is unseen is more real to you. You see, he is more real to me than my pain. He is more real to me than my sickness. He is more real to me than my financial problems. And guess what happens? As he is more real to me, the pain subsides. The finances subside because they were distractions. You can hear me today, can't you? Can you feel it a little bit with me? (laughs) You know that scripture about muzzling the ox? Maybe there are times. Uh, this is, to me, I, I noticed this in the first service. I think this is a heavy message for many of you. For me, it's not. I'll tell you why. Because this is life. This is life. Once you realize, I'm going after the invisible. The rest of you can have the visible. I'm going after the invisible. Because it's going to sustain me. It's going to be real when I die. I can experience it now. And I, I, I want to throw you into that fire. You see, it doesn't matter how much education you have. It doesn't matter how messed up you were before this. If you jump in, you get a head start. You get a head start because there are a lot of people with lots of knowledge, but no trust. There are lots of people who have agreement, but no reliance. The way you progress You have this substance. You have this assurance that what I'm hoping for is already mine. And that what I don't see, but I know is there, that I've experienced, what I've experienced in my heart, what I've I've encountered in my soul, that this is more real than what I see. So I want you to, I ask you to stand with me. I just want to do this one more time and, and add one to it. I, to me today, these are sort of the faith statements that I want you to take home. One of them is this. My father has said that by my birthday, I will have my bicycle. Now, I understand some of you are wanting to take this literally because I'm a literal guy. And so by your birthday, you're probably going to literally be looking for a bicycle. But it's actually figurative to the fact that whenever the father says he will do something, that's when it will happen, and he will not delay. So would you just put that thought and remind yourself and take it home that whatever lengthy thing you're going through, whatever difficult thing you're going through, would you say this with me? My father has promised promised that by my birthday, birthday, I will have my bicycle. Oh, that was a little weak. Do it again. My father has promised promised that by my birthday, birthday, I will have my bicycle. bicycle. Some of you kind of rose up a little taller in the spirit. I'm not looking at you physically, but some of you in the spirit, something happened. Do it one more time for me. My father has promised promised that by my birthday, birthday, I will have my bicycle. See, this is the, it's just a statement to try to 
an, an, an anointed way to trigger your spirit to hold on tight. Now, the second part of Hebrews 11, 1, you have to, you have to say something like this to your soul. My Father, who I cannot see, is more real to me than the world that I do see. That's a faith statement. That's a statement of those who begin to experience his manifest presence and who begin to realize that he's more important than anything I see. And see, once that's there, once that's the anchor of your soul, then come hell or high water, you're going to overcome. You're going you're gonna to see victories. You're going to see victories like never before because what worked in the past of getting you unbelieving and anxious and fearful, it won't work anymore. See, all fear is sight-based. It's that, it's that sense of, of whatever's visible is real, whatever I feel is real, whatever's going to happen. I, I have an, uh, my interpretation of it is real. There's only one who really knows what's real, and it's the Lord Jesus. So if you can say this, you may not be where you can say this yet, but this is my statement. My Father who is invisible is more real to me than the world I can see. My Father who is invisible is more real to me than the world I can see. Hmm. You know something, I know for some of you this is new, but the pleasure of the Lord is on that statement. Can you just lean into it for a minute? Let me just say it over you again. Your Father who is invisible is more real than the world that you can see. He is eternal. He was here before the world was begun. With one word, he spoke it into being. With one hand, he holds it together. And when this world is gone or when you are taken home, he will be your father forever. In a place where no tears and every tear you've had here has been valued. He's the Father who kept the hardest promise, who now will keep every promise. I just seal this up, that, that for you today, that this is a day of fresh faith. Would you declare that over yourself? Would you just speak that over yourself and say, this is a day of fresh faith for me? I have the substance of the things hoped for. And I have the conviction of the things not seen. These are things that grip us. They're the things that are deep in our soul. The things that are the anchors. Lord, we love you today. We bless you. In Jesus' name, amen. I'm going to ask that the prayer, our prayer team would come forward. You don't want to leave here without kind of doing something with this faith. You want to make sure that you step into it. Great things will happen because of faith. The whole table is set for you. You just need to be able to eat. Faith is the instrument through which. They're up here if you want to come and have some prayer, but I just bless you now to go in Jesus' name. God bless you. Have a great week.